What are the broader trends characterizing youth voting patterns in recent years? How have new media outlets affected young voters? From the Chicago Policy Review and the University of Chicago, this is Chicago Policy Review. I'm your host, Lindsay Hearn, and today we're talking with Alexander Hefner. Alexander Hefner is a journalist, writer, and civic educator, and he is currently producing a series of reports on the college vote for PBS's Need to Know, a nationally syndicated news magazine. It's great to have you here, Alexander. Thanks for having me. So I was wondering if you might be able to just speak briefly about some large trends characterizing the youth vote in recent years. Well, since young people, specifically 18 to 21-year-olds, got the right to vote, there have been three elections where young people turned out substantially. 1972, following the 26th Amendment. And that was in a backlash against Vietnam and foreign intervention and the feeling that young people were being excluded from the political process. <clears throat> since then, in 2008 and um, a, a decade earlier, um, a little more than a decade earlier, in 1992, President Obama and President Clinton were able to galvanize young people and reach them on their channels, um, whether it was President Obama going on The Daily Show or President Clinton going on MTV. Young people responded enthusiastically to their message and to what they personified, which was a kind of charisma in American politics. So. Going off of that, how would you say the enthusiasm for Obama, you know, how would you say that has altered since 2008, now that he's an incumbent? Um, and what are maybe some challenges he's facing, in your opinion, with courting college-age voters in this election compared with the 2008 presidential election? Well, I think young people who were college-age in 2008 have recognized that the president would not be able and wasn't able to accomplish what he promised by himself. And therefore, this idea of a superman here to rescue the American worker or the aspiring professional who's just graduated from college, that was a vision that would never be realistic under any presidency, whether it was John McCain's or Barack Obama's. And therefore, there's there's been a sense of detachment from a political process that has continues to be a failure in the eyes of many young people. So the enthusiasm on campuses is not nearly as apparent as it was in 2008. Obviously there are anecdotal stories about young people not boasting the same kind of Obama apparel or stickers, whether it's on their backpacks or on their cars and whether it's in suburbia or the inner city, there's just not the same tangible feeling that young people are seriously engaged and supporting the president. <clears throat> if anything, you've had a generational backlash against this notion of job joblessness and homelessness and um, un or underemployment being the prevailing status of, of young people. And um, I think Governor Romney, President Obama's Republican opponent, obviously, has been able to exploit the sense of, of young people's helplessness 
And uh, even if he's not proposing prescriptions that young people would normally align themselves with, that is a, a lack of an intervention, a lack of activism, they're still beginning to listen to the other side of the the the, um, the ticket or the you know partisan fence, uh, and therefore I think you might see twenty something seriously consider voting for Romney, which is not what you would have expected coming out of the gate of the two thousand eight presidential election. So what are some of the challenges that Romney is facing in terms of courting vote. Well, his in his own yes. His primary challenge is that his policies are not the policies that young people tend to favor. Um, whether that's supporting uh, fundamental social programs that assist young people in their pursuit of employment or college or um, or graduate school, you know. Romney aligning himself with Republicans in Congress who have opted for an austerity vision of the future of American government. Romney doesn't really have the policy mojo to appeal to young people. And therefore, he's alluding to the, the lack of passion or the um, disillusionment of young people. And his effort to court younger voters has not been driven by policy. It's been driven by an anti-Obama message. Um, the millennials who are struggling are going to continue to struggle under the current administration. The governor, I think, the Republican ticket has an opening in terms of the issue of taxation because more than President Obama and Vice President Biden, the Republicans during the primary campaign and the general election have talked a lot about tax reform. And I think young people view the tax system in this country, and we're here at an institution focused on public policy, so it's important to discuss. I think young people generally find the current tax system unfair, um, inherently unfair. And the deductions and exemptions that the governor has talked about removing, although he hasn't named specific ones, they could end up helping 20-somethings who are making $50,000 versus families who might be making a little bit more money but can ultimately use deductions and exemptions um, and and get a break uh, after tax day. Um, unfortunately, the Romney campaign has not really seen the potential for making that argument to younger voters by focusing on defending its own um, potential plans on the wealthy because you know, I think generally young people want to hear that we have a fair, equitable tax system. And Romney and Ryan have had to defend their positions because the president is saying you, you want to um, alleviate what is not a burden on the upper you know, middle class of America. In terms of other pu- public policy questions, I mean, generally Romney has taken very as he, in his own words, has said, severely conservative positions on social issues, whether it's reproductive rights or, um, you know, gay marriage. Um, young people generally are in unison, according to most public opinion surveys. They support equal rights for <clears throat> gays and lesbians. They tend to support gay marriage overwhelmingly, and they support reproductive rights, whether it's a woman's access to contraception or to abortion. So, um, you know, the the social issues are really um, an area where 
at this point in the campaign, Governor Romney is not going to be able to use them to his advantage. Uh, and, and quite to the contrary, the president is going to remind people that these millennial views are not really in harmony with uh, what he would say is a portrait of America from the 1950s. So in terms of accessing these, this key demographic of young voters, how important is the medium through which young voters are receiving news about um, new policies that might be enacted? How important is the medium through which they're receiving this information um, in affecting their voting patterns and opinions? Um, <clears throat> I think today when so much of young people's education or media diet is uh, dominated by uh, entertainment news and television and the internet. I think it's important for the president to connect and for any presidential candidate to connect um, via the web, via the Daily Show, um, or any other uh, um, comedy programs or um, untraditional political venues for discourse. I'm not saying that there's necessarily a direct link between Stewart and Colbert and youth engagement widely, but uh, at least he has to try to access younger Americans because they're a vital part of his electoral math in terms of winning the election. Um, and you know, beyond the politics, I think it's important that young people have in their normal everyday diet of news, I think it's important that they have access to presidential rhetoric um, and have access to the people who are governing our country. Does the filter or I guess the stylized representation of news stories, would you say that that is more positive than negative? So it's better to receive some news from maybe um, you know, a comedic news source um, like The Daily Show than to you know, be shut out maybe from some of these dialogues or conversations that are happening about the political process. It's better to have a taste of what's going on than to be totally uninformed. And even if it's not their intention when they turn on Comedy Central to learn about the news or what's happening in the country, I think they, they get a better picture. Um, I would focus more on the Stewart program than Colbert because Colbert is basically mocking a Republican um, and uh, and most of what he's saying, he doesn't believe, uh, but what, what he's saying is an act, as he's defined it himself. Whereas Stewart and Bill Maher and some of these other folks will present news items, and they tend to focus on the ironies of the political system. So far, we've touched on very liberal uh, news, news comedy shows. What would you say, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum, um, is the conservative bias just not as appealing to young voters? I think young people generally find more more interest in satire than you know other demographics within the electorate, and therefore it's it's. Um, it's sort of a natural relationship that young people have with comedians of that ilk. But if you were to talk about 
the counterpoint to the Colbert's and Stewart's, it would be talk radio, conservative talk radio. I mean, you know, Rush Limbaugh is as much an entertainer as he is a broadcaster or anything else. And he rallies conservatives to a cause in, in the same way at times John Stewart and, and Stephen Colbert will enliven the discourse of young people and point out whether it's an absurdity or you know, something that should be fixed or at you know times just um, things that may not be a, something we can correct, but it's just funny to laugh over. I mean, Colbert, again, Colbert is impersonating Republicans like Bill O'Reilly or Rush Limbaugh. But what, what Limbaugh can do is he can animate the base with um, fiery rhetoric that, um, like, for instance, you know, the, the muffins that lawyers at the Justice Department or whichever cabinet agency was responsible for a budget. I mean, he, he, he can blow something up out of proportion um, when it was not a muffin. It was a breakfast for some sort of convention of public workers. When you were founding and editing Scoop 08 and Scoop 44, were there particular issues then in speaking about you know, appealing to a younger um, demographic? Were there particular issues that you decided to focus on primarily in order to appeal to younger voters? That's a good question. I think that when we targeted the 08 presidential contest, we wanted to open up every circuit in terms of what may or may not be on the minds of young people. And therefore, we focused on health care, immigration, a vast array of public policy issues. And I think that it, it depends on your own interest in politics and those roots. Uh, it depends on those factors to what extent you're more engaged in an issue like immigration if you're concerned with uh, a family who is not born in the U.S. or your own ability to um, go to college as a first or second generation immigrant. <clears throat> I think a lot of political discourse and young people's interests is... Um, correlates with their own degree of investment in, in democracy. And if they view their participation as integral to their livelihood, then there's going to be a larger civic outpouring of, of interest and activism and ultimately votes that are cast on election day. Alexander, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Chicago Policy Radio, a production of the Chicago Policy Review and the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Our podcast is produced and edited by Lindsay Hearn and David Levine. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ryan Gee. Special thanks this week to Kathy Marshall. You can find us at www.chicagopolicyreview.org and on iTunes, or email us at media at chicagopolicyreview.org. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.